Good morning. Welcome. January 31st. We are well into this new year of 2021. Consider this question. How do you respond to all the negative noise around us? What I mean is this. How do you how do you maintain the right focus when there is such a barrage of of negative news and and negative comments, even possibly false statements that are that are all around us. How do you keep your mind focused on what is true? Well, that question opens our hearts to the real context, the human and the societal context of a particular part of God's word. Second Peter chapter three. In this chapter, beginning in verse 1, we read these words from our author. The Apostle Peter writes, I am stirring up your mind by way of a reminder. And the idea of the act to remind it simply means to cause someone to think. Peter writes to the first century church. He writes to the community of faith. My desire is to cause you to think. But in his context, he's encouraging that they have their mind set on what is true and not on all the negative messages and the false beliefs that were swirling about them. What was this context that the author Peter desired to lift the minds of his readers from so that they could have their Thoughts and their minds set on truth. Notice the context. We're in the third chapter of Second Peter, but if you were to back up to the to the movement of chapters one and two, you'll learn this very dangerous human context and this societal context into which Peter speaks. In chapter one, verse sixteen, we find reference to cleverly crafted stories. Peter exposes this error. There were those who were twisting the truth. Peter writes, don't listen to them. Fast forward to chapter 1, verse 20, and you hear a statement about the proper interpretation of the Bible, of scriptures. Peter exposes the error of those who were misinterpreting the Bible. Have you ever heard someone's voice ring out, either in person or on media, a certain truth from the Bible, but the truth was was twisted and tainted a bit by personal preference or personal agenda. Well, Peter writes, avoid this. Fast forward to chapter 2 and and verse 1, 2, and 3. You see several references of error and false beliefs. Chapter 1, there's a reference to destructive heresies. There were whole systems of error being allowed in the church that seemed to be true, but when you really listened to, to a way of thinking, you, you can see clearly this is the truth twisted. Peter exposed those destructive heresies. In verse 3 of chapter 2, Peter referenced false words. This becomes the expression of those who were, who were speaking perhaps out of both sides of their mouth. They were, they were saying one thing but really intended something else. Misleading expressions would be a good definition of these false words. And this becomes, again, another error that our author exposed. Moving forward in chapter 2 to verse 10, we see evidence that there were, there were those people of influence 
affecting the first century church who actually had hearts that were rebellious. And Peter exposes this. Although the words coming from certain individuals sounded good, all their hearts were were not in tune with God. They were rebelling. They were following their own way. Peter exposes that error. In, in verses 13 through 16, you you see this condition of man's heart that was bent more toward what he craved than the truth. Peter exposed the error of those who based truth on their own fleshly instinct. Peter exposes that error. In verses 17 through 19 of chapter 2, our author exposed the error that was, was expressed in deception. People, teachers, influencers who would have great words but their hearts were corrupt. Peter exposed uh, this error. And then uh, as chapter 2 concluded in verses 20 through 22, and Peter exposed the blatant uh, error of hypocrisy. Those who were in their false expressions of what is true were leading people astray. That's a lot. That is a lot of negative messages and error and false beliefs that constantly swirled about the minds of of those early Christians. And when I read the context, I, I step back and I, I consider the question, how did they keep their minds focused on what is true? Maybe that's a question that we need to have in front of our lives today, because there are, as already stated in our own societal context, a lot of negative messages, uh, a lot of false beliefs, a lot of negative comments that that overwhelms us every day. Perhaps you, like me, will at times find yourself at saturation level. And there's some practical responses we can make. We can we can simply turn off the news. We can turn off the television and 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 uh, turn off power down our devices. And perhaps. Practically, that's some wise steps that we should take at times. But obviously, we, we don't want to be uninformed. So as we try to lean in to what's happening in the world, what, what can we do to make sense of where our minds need to rest? Now, these are great questions. And I welcome you to our continued study series titled uh, Prepare. In this particular teaching series, as we move through Second Peter, our, our text for this study, we, we find in chapter 3, verse 1, Peter's interested in where the minds of the first century Christians were placed concerning all that was going on in and around the church, concerning uh, negative messages, false beliefs, and error. But if you look deeper into verse 1, Peter addresses the, the hearers, he addresses his readership with a, an incredible term. An incredible reference, and that reference is beloved. In chapter 3, verse 1, we read Peter writing, This is now beloved. In the second letter I've written to you, he could be referencing the companion with the epistle we know as First Peter. He could be referencing some other uh, uh, articles, uh, perhaps, that he has, has written. But we know that Peter has been in an ongoing conversation with many of the churches in the first century. This is a general epistle, meaning written not to a specific named church, but to many different churches. And in this 
writing in these words that God's Holy Spirit gave him to speak into the lives of, of those first century followers of Jesus who were, who were hit daily with negative news. Uh, Peter writes, uh, you're beloved. So what I would like to join you in for just a moment is journeying through some of the verses in chapter 3 of Second Peter to discover some of the reminders Peter gave his audience. For he writes, you're beloved. You are the beloved. And, and my desire, verse 1, is to stir your mind to remember. So what can we do when our minds are saturated with negative, with, with false beliefs, with error, with all of these discouraging sound bites that come to us from, from our culture? What can we do? And Peter would say, put your mind on what you already know. There are some truths you need to remember. So let me share with you five truths to remember as you navigate in this culture of negative news. Uh, five truths to remember as you continue forward uh, in your faith in Jesus Christ. And if, if you're hearing these words and you're not certain where you stand with Jesus and you think, well, maybe this message is not for me. No, lean in. Because I can assure you, wherever you may find yourself in this response to faith in Jesus there's one uh, truth that ties us all together, one reality, and that reality is we're hearing news that at times is discouraging. Where can we find truth that lifts us up, that's encouraging? Where is the truth that we can remember so that our minds stay on what is ultimately true and not on that which is false? Well, here are um, five reminders. Reminder number one we find in the term of verse one, beloved. The first reminder I give you is this. You are beloved. God loves you. This term beloved in its noun form comes from the old word agapatoi, which actually can indicate you're the object of God's love. Is this not encouraging? I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly a great encouragement to know that someone loves me. But when, when your identity is placed in a noun form and, and that person says, you are the object of my love. You are, you are in my life. You are established in my love. Uh, this becomes the message of that term. Hey, you're beloved. So the first reminder I give you is, is simply this. Remember that God loves you. I know that sounds very foundational. And for many who have their faith in Jesus, you may say, wow, let's, let's look for something deeper. Well, well, hang on. We, we will, but, but let's not move past the most important reminder in the, these uncertain days. You are the beloved. You are indeed loved. And Peter wrote to the beloved, to those recipients of his writing who knew Jesus and were in the church. He wrote that he desired to stir their pure minds. So Peter references their minds as pure. I believe this is a direct contrast to the evil false leaders he had given a very clear detail about in chapter 2. So in chapter 2 concludes, there are those who are like dogs that return to their own vomit, the last verse of chapter 2. Peter's referencing the false teachers who really did not genuinely know Jesus. But in chapter 3, verse 1, the very next verse, Peter writes, but your minds are pure, meaning untainted from, from hypocrisy, from the heresies. You truly know Jesus. Now remember, God loves you. You are the beloved. And oh, how important it is to remember who we are in Christ. We are forgiven. 
We're, we're justified. The scripture teaches us this truth. It's just as if we've never sinned. We've been made whole if our faith is in Jesus. We've, we've been, we've been saved. I love how Paul described his own life in Galatians chapter two, verse 20. I've been crucified with Jesus, meaning I accept by faith what Jesus did on the cross. And this has made me brand new. It's no longer me living by my own fleshly impulses or the impulses of the culture. I'm living by God's love made known to me through Jesus. Well, this is an amazing reminder. Let's remember who we are. Let's remember that we are the beloved. There is a village in India, just this side of the Bangladesh border. And the name of the village is the village of Kong Thong. There is a young mom in this village who wrote an article. And I've uh, taken a statement of this article out because I'd love for you to hear a beautiful story that will help us to better identify with the fact that we're the beloved. In the village of Kong Thong, a young mom writes this. When our babies are born, we as mothers sing a tune over their lives as they sleep. That tune becomes their name. And we can only give the children their tunes because they come from a mother's love. Isn't that incredible? Here's a village where I'm told there's over 700 people living in this small location. And most of the children and those who've grown a bit have a tune, a song that actually defines their identity. In Zephaniah chapter 3, God is described as exulting over us. The prophet described God as singing over us. Do you feel the Father's love? God is called our Father, our Abba, and he, he loves you. Oh, you are the beloved. I pray that you will open your heart to His love by placing your faith in Christ. Or if you, if you know Jesus, if you're in a relationship through faith in Christ, I pray that you are remembering now that your ultimate identity is that you're loved. So speaking of being loved by God and, and what Christ has accomplished, let's look a little deeper into that fact what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And let's find our second reminder. Here's a second reminder in these uncertain times. We move to verse 2. Paul writes, How do I want to stir your mind to remember what is good and not listen to what is negative in the world? Verse 2, That you would remember the words spoken beforehand by the prophets and by the apostles. Peter even writes specifically to the church of his day, Your apostles. He's not speaking necessarily of the apostles who were members of particular churches, although he is speaking of those apostles who were were used by Jesus and by the Holy Spirit to truly begin the, the influence of the gospel that became known as the church in the first century. So as the church began to emerge and grow, God raised up those apostles which preached the gospel of Jesus and taught the scriptures that, that gave the gospel foundation to the church. This is the exact reference to prophets and apostles. I remember from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, a description of the foundation of the church given in these words. In Ephesians 2, verse 20, this is what we're told. The church, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. So the reference to Jesus as the cornerstone indicates that the apostles and prophets 
both spoken of in Ephesians and here, references the gospel foundation of, of God loving the world to Himself through Christ. That which was foretold and explained by the prophets became reality as described in the Gospels and then brought to man as demonstrated through the New Testament acts of the Holy Spirit in the church. And so here we have it. Remember the foundation of the Gospel. This is to say, hold on to the reliability of God's Word. That gives us the message of Jesus. So how can we respond in this day of negative messages? Secondly, remember the truth. There's only one source of real truth, and that's God's word, his holy scriptures, which bring to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel story of Jesus. Hold tight to the reliability of God's word. This is our response in a day when there are so many negative messages swirling about us. I, I love this story that comes to us from modern day Jerusalem. There was uh, an individual who remembered that in the city of Jerusalem and in the outer areas that there were at one time trees that grew that had medicinal properties. And I love how this person describes her desire to find those trees. And she writes that she looked for those trees when she returned to the city and couldn't find them. Although there were other trees that were medicinal, but she couldn't find these old ancient trees. So she contacted a few people who were working at archaeological sites and discovered that they had found old, old seeds in those archaeological sites that could perhaps be seeds to these old trees that have medicinal properties. So she begged and pleaded, and finally those seeds were released. And she planted those seeds. This story comes to us from the Science Journal titled Science Advance. And this journal describes how these trees, these seeds buried in archaeological finds for hundreds and thousands of years, actually, when planted, came up as green shoots. And I think they're documented as many as six trees right now that are alive and vibrant from these seeds that were thought to have been lost are dead for, for many, many years. So it's little wonder that the Bible references God's holy scripture, the Bible, as the imperishable seed. You see this actually in First Peter chapter 1, verse 23. All flesh is like grass, and the glory of the flower like grass will fall off, but the word of God, like that imperishable seed, lasts Forever, The prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. God's word is, is imperishable. You can depend and rely upon God's word. So where does my mind go in a culture where, where all the news seemingly around us is negative and, and, and where, where truth is hard to find? Well, remember who you are in Christ, you are beloved. Also remember that God's truth, His Word, is reliable. But speaking of how reliable is the truth of God's Word, here's a third reminder. This is more of a, of a negative context, but still very important to remember. Third, the reminder of, of the unreliability of man's truth. This is uh, brought to light in verses 3 and 4. Remember how unreliable is the truth that man tries to find on his own. In verse 3, we read from our author, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, 
That is more expounded upon in chapter 2. We've discovered that. And saying, where's the promise of the second coming of Jesus? For even when the fathers fell asleep, all continues as it has from the beginning of creation. Verse 3 identifies the markers. Verse 4 identifies their reasoning. And the reasoning is, is futile. So first, who are the mockers? The mockers uh, in the original text represents those who scoff at God's word. The, the original text would literally read this way. Mockers who mock are scoffers who scoff. There were those who scoffed and ignored and disregarded God's truth because they sought their own truth. And then they proved how unreliable is the truth of man because in verse Four, this is their argument. We don't believe that the promises Jesus gave are right because he promised that he would come again and he hasn't come again. Do you see how futile this is? They judge truth by what they were seeing at the moment, not by the absolute truth, which is in God, in his truth and in Jesus Christ. They scoffed at the truth and their human reasoning reminds me of what some have termed as a Hebrew idiomatic uh, source of questioning. We find this actually in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, when Malachi is writing uh, from the perspective of the spiritual blindness of God's people and those who had turned their backs on God said, where is God's justice? Every man is doing what he wants to do and there is no justice of God. Well, God's justice hadn't fallen at that time. But those mockers in Malachi's day were, were saying, we're doing as we please. Nothing's happened to us. So where is God's justice? Uh, the question, much like the question here, was a question of mockery. Here the question of mockery is, where is the second coming? This certainly demonstrates the futility of man's reasoning. So as we work through these reminders, I just wanted to stop at this third reminder. Remember, uh, be reminded of how futile, how unreliable is man's attempt to form truth. Now, in reference to this unreliability of man's attempt to, to, to somehow form or create truth, let's move to uh, verse 5, which takes us to the reminder of God's work. I, I named this fourth reminder as God's revealed will and history. Now, here these mockers were looking at history, for they referenced the fathers who had fallen asleep, meaning their patriarchs who had died. And they say, hey, since the beginning of time, even through our forefathers, nothing has been proven about Christ coming back. So obviously this is not going to happen. Enter verse 5 and enter the emphasis upon God's revealed will and God's history. So many people think that history has the last word. History does not. God God in his history has the first and the last word. And this is proven in verses 5, 6, and 7. And may I give you three expressions of God's history? Verse 5, there's the history of creation. For when they maintain this argument, meaning the mockers, it escapes their minds that the word of God, by the word of God, by God himself and his word, the heavens came into creation long ago and the earth was formed out of water, by water. It's an amazing verse. If you look at the very beginning of the Bible and go to verse 2, verse 2 of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 2, describes that God's Spirit hovered over the waters. There was this, uh, this presence of, 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 of a watery existence that, that became life. And from that, God created life. He separated the waters. He created all that there is. 
in chapter 2, verse 6 of Genesis, we're told that a mist arose. God created this water that uh, replenished and brought life to the ground. And so uh, Peter is right. In verse 5, God created all things from water and he created it by water and it existed from the nourishment of water. So God's history, look at the microcosm of God's creation. Uh, verse 5 proves to us that God's history is found even in the most microcosm uh, of, of details in creation. From that droplet of water that is referenced as a mist, it brings life to ground which germinates the seed. And we, we know the process. So verse 5 emphasizes from God's revealed will in history, His microscopic control and presence. And this is a beautiful picture. But look at verse 6. Uh, through the world also, speaking of water, P Peter might be saying, the earth was destroyed by the flood. Well, this gives us a different perspective of God's history, his, his in-chargeness, him, him being in control. This gives us the opposite of the microscopic view of his work. This gives us the macro view because the flood was a world event. So from verse 5 and 6, we hear the author saying, from the most microscopic of details to the most macro expression of God's work, from a droplet of water that creates life to the, the entire earth being flooded by water, God is revealing His divine plan. And history proves that. So, oh, let your mind go to this, not to the negative... Uh, notions of our culture. Allow your mind to be reminded of the fact that God from the very beginning has been in charge and, and in control, both at the microscopic and at the macro level of, of all that, that exists and all that has happened. So yes, but look at verse 7. By His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire for the day of judgment. Now the issue in Peter's day, the heresies that, that surfaced uh, were prompted by this disregard of the second coming, by God's judgment. Would it not be easy for someone to say, well, we don't believe God's judgment will fall, so there's not a whole lot of license against our activity morally. We have a moral license to do as we please because this idea of Jesus returning God's judgment is really uh, a, a myth and it's not coming to true because it hasn't come true as the prophets described. Again, futile thought, futile argument. And so our author responds, as God was perfectly demonstrating his sovereignty in the microscopic details of creation. And as he proved himself in authority over the macro picture of the flood, God is bringing about judgment. There is an end to all of this. And God is bringing that about. His will and his timing is perfect. The author will not argue too much about when Christ will come. Because Jesus even said in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, even the Son of Man does not know. Peter is not arguing when Christ will come. He's not arguing the when. Peter is, is demonstrating the who. God's work is perfect. His history and his divine revealed will proves this. And Jesus is coming again. So this takes us to our final reminder. We've looked at four thus far. Here is the fifth reminder. We find our way to verse 8 and 9. But let no fact like this escape you. Peter commands the attention of his audience. Don't let this fact escape you. A thousand years with the Lord is like a day and a day like a, a thousand years. The Lord is not slow 
to his promises. Peter quotes from the psalmist who mirrored this beautiful imagery of the timelessness of God. That's the emphasis. God is timeless. He's not bound by our expectation of time. But verse 9 is key. And we close here. And I just so thank you for leaning in and listening to these five reminders. Here's the fifth reminder. God's salvation in Christ. Where does your mind go when all around the world is so negative? Our mind must go to God's mission demonstrated from the very beginning through the scripture, through all of his history, manifested in, in Jesus Christ. God's, God's mission of salvation in Christ uh, represents this final reminder to which our mind needs to go when all the messages around us are so incredibly negative. The scripture says God is not slow to his promise. God's not delaying the coming of Jesus, but he's desiring that all come to repentance. Isn't that beautiful? That's a beautiful statement. Scripture teaches us that there'll be those who will reject the love of God. But God is not slow in calling us to turn to Him. I just want to give you a couple of examples of this. In the prophet of Joel, reread in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I won't read all of these words, but, but I want you to know how all of Scripture agrees with the fact that God is, 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 is patient and through his love and kindness, desires to draw man's heart to himself. In Joel chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, we read this. Joel writes in verse 13, Don't rend your garments, rend your heart. Return to the Lord, for he's gracious. He's compassionate. I can flip over to Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. And Jonah was a bit vexed with God because Jonah didn't want to see the Ninevites redeemed, restored, delivered. But this is why Jonah said, Lord, I now know that what I said is coming about, that you are gracious and you're compassionate. You're slow to anger. And then coming into the New Testament, I love Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where we know it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance because he is kind and he's patient. Over and over again, we read through the scripture of God's grace and patience because Although there will be some that will reject his love, and that's hard to fathom. Oh, God is drawing man to himself. This is the fifth reminder. When all else in the world seems negative, and you're thinking, what is God doing? What is he up to? Uh, remember, he's, he's, he's giving man an opportunity to know his love and to turn to him and to repent and to know his grace and his forgiveness. What can we do in response to the negative messages? In conclusion... Of all of these reminders, there's one common denominator. Live out the truth of God's love. Live out the truth of His grace. All of these reminders point us to that pinpoint, accurate step we take, even though all of these negative messages take place. Live out the love and the truth and the grace of Jesus Christ. I pray that these reminders have helped you to take your mind off of all these negatives else in the world and to have your mind set upon what God is doing. What is God doing? I love the author N.T. Wright in his book, God in the Pandemic. He reminds us that whatever God is doing right now is Jesus-shaped. We may come up with all of our ideas and premises of what God is doing amid this pandemic, but we can be assured whatever he's doing, it's Jesus-shaped. He's doing nothing different than he did when Jesus went to the cross and walked out of the grave. He's drawing mankind to himself. I need to share this story with you from author uh, Mary uh, Lutaud. This is an amazing story, and this is one that will help us to engage with these 
reminders as we close today. Uh, this author writes, My dad kept a jar of coins on his dresser, and every night he would come home from work, and I would hear him dropping the coins in the jar. One day, I decided that I was going to go and take some coins out of his jar. I was about nine years of age. I pilfered through a few nickels and grabbed a handful of pennies. And before I knew it, I had swindled my dad out of his loose change, and he never noticed. Several years later, guilt gripped me, and I knew that what I had been doing was considered stealing and was wrong. I had no way to explain why this was my behavior, but with my heart pounding, I sat down and wrote out an apology to my dad, confessing my sin of taking his money out of the jar. And in that note, I asked him to forgive me. I tucked it under his coin jar uh, alongside of a pile of pennies that I had returned for my restitution. And I waited anxiously for my dad to confront me based on the note that I had written. Day one went by, he said nothing. Another day passed, he still said nothing. And then another. Eventually, I forgot about the note. One day out of the blue, my dad stepped into my room and said, Marion, I got your note and the pennies. <laughs> my heart raced. My throat felt like it was crammed full of marbles. I couldn't swallow. I was expecting punishment. But he seemed on the verge of tears. And this didn't make sense to me. I had wronged him. He had every right to be mad at me and to punish me. But instead, in his tears, he said, Marion, thank you. And he gave me a hug. And then he left. We never spoke of it again. I stood there dumbfounded. Why? Why, when I fully deserved my father's wrath, did he instead show me mercy? I didn't deserve it. I hadn't earned it. I felt like a criminal that was let off completely free. And then she concludes, this was my first powerful lesson on judgment and grace. Since then, I've never gotten over the way grace feels. It's like waiting for the other shoe to drop, but it never does. It's experiencing utter relief and humility in the face of guilt because you know how bad you can be. But God, your daddy, chooses to love and forgive you anyway. It is truly God's riches at Christ's expense. Remember these truths that we've covered today in God's word culminating in this powerful picture that God desires that all return to Him in repentance. He desires to expose His grace and His, His forgiveness and mercy, not just uh, arbitrarily or generally, but to give us His grace and mercy in our own lives. So that like Mary and we can say, wow, the other, few ha other shoe hasn't dropped because God's grace is that real. And when we deserve judgment and punishment, God has extended through Jesus His grace, love, and forgiveness. Quoting our author, I, I pray that you never get over how grace feels. This is truth. And this becomes the common message in all of these reminders that we've been asked by the Scripture to hold tight against a, against a sea, a, a societal surge of negative messages and, and false beliefs and error. So where does your mind go? with all these negative messages swirling about. I pray your mind goes to the love of God in Christ. And I pray that you know that love. 
And I pray that you're living it out boldly. Not being influenced by the negative messages, not listening to the, to the negative, but focusing on these reminders, on the truth, God's love in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for bringing us your word, making it real to us. Help us to live in your grace and your mercy and not to listen to the negative messages that are around us. Help us to listen to your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. If you want to know more about the love of Christ, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, there's a website location. We invite you to go there now. Go there now. We will reach out to you. And we want to have this conversation. It's life-changing about how to know Jesus personally. And if you're following Jesus, don't let your mind become saturated. Don't get to saturation level with all this negative that you hear in the world. Focus on the truth. Be reminded of where your mind should be at this very moment. God's love in Jesus Christ. Let's live out that grace and that love for others. Amen. Amen. Love you a lot. God bless.